0: Welcome to Surviving Society with Shanto Tso.
1: Towards a more sociable sociology. Hello everyone!
0: Hi everyone, we're back with another podcast, um, this time with Dr. Mikola Benson from Goldsmiths, a reader in sociology.
1: Yep, that's me. Thank you for having me
2: on.
0: What is a reader? <laughs> really good question,
2: right? So it's a slightly misleading title because it suggests that I just read. Um, I'm really looking forward to some time to read. Uh-huh. I've been a reader for I think three years now. But what it is really, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a position in the academic structure and it's between a senior lecturer and a professor. And really it's a position that is kind of originally in its original form was used to denote um, people who had achieved certain things in respect to research. But now, of course, the academic life cycle is not only about research, it's about teaching, which it always was, but also about admin. So it's a kind of a a semi-senior position, let's say. Um, It's equivalent to what they call in the US the associate professor.
0: Do you know what? That actually makes it very clear.
1: It does make it very clear. I remember going to a university open yeah. date with my mum, and my mum just like loving it, she's never
0: yeah. been in a university before. Yeah.
1: And um I remember there was a reader in sociology that was like presenting and it said reader. and mum was like, She's a reader. She's a <laughs> reader. And I was like, Mum, what is that? and She's like, it means she gets paid to read all the time. And I was like, Oh, wow. But you know, it's not do you actually know, that. I, I really wish that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Michaela. You're going to talk to us a bit about your career-long research in migration, um, belonging and citizenship. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, I
2: think so. That's what you asked me to do. <laughs> yeah!
1: <laughs> so we were talking before we started recording about how sometimes when we sort of ask academics how they got into what they're researching, sometimes people get a bit like sort of, what like how would you describe it to you? I,
0: I suppose they get a bit cagey because you're trying to get them to reflect on personal experiences that led them to their research yeah so but
1: in my head that's sort of like that i, I don't know i don't feel. Oh as no, I'm...
0: but it's 2019 internet and everything isn't it like oh, it's right. a bit it's a bit mad isn't okay, it yeah
1: yeah, yeah. but Mikola, you said you don't want to talk to us about how you came to be <laughs> passionate about your research which is very good as well
2: I think that the reason that people get nervous about it is because they're worried that it will come across as
1: slightly too narcissistic, so I apologise in advance. I don't but I, I don't know. Maybe, but, but I just think it's... In, I really like hearing about people's stories. Like, I don't know.
0: If you're not in, an academic and you think, well, how did you get into this? Like, Yeah. Do you, you, you just decide this? Because I think when you, people talk, talk about PhDs, well, most of my mates, they just think you just chose this randomly. They don't see a, a kind of genealogy going back the way.
2: Yeah, I think it's like an intellectual genealogy as well that can go alongside that. But it is, from my point of view, it's always been really interesting to think about why I started to study migration. And it is a story that is tied up with my own family history. Um, It's tied up with my own personal history as well. And it's tied into the things that I saw that were missing from the narrative around the sociology of migration at the time when I was starting my PhD. Just a little bit of a backtrack. And I, I think some people will know this, this story and some people won't know this story. I come from a family of people who migrated. Um, I think that's the first thing to say. Um, and I'm not going to go back too far in history, but I'll just go back to my grandfather my mum's dad, who went to Hong Kong with the army um, in the probably in the early 50s, it must have been. Um, and he met my grandmother, who is Hong Kong Chinese, and he settled down and he married her, Um, and he raised my mother and my aunt in Hong Kong with my grandmother. Um, I think for lots of reasons. I mean, he came from rural Wiltshire. Um, It's very, very clear that the type of life that he could have and the life his children could have would be better in Hong Kong for a variety of reasons, um, including the fact that even within his own family, they would ask him questions about my grandmother, like. You know, did she live in a tree? Those kinds of things. So those are very real histories within my own family.
1: And your grandmother, she's Hong Kong Chinese.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, quite, it, it's quite complicated. Is it complica- complicated? It's really complicated because culturally she clearly was Hong Kong Chinese. She's can't, she was Cantonese speaking. Yep. Um, that's the tradition she came from. She was also born a Muslim. Uh, and converted to Christianity.
0: That's so complex, man.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I know, Tiso's face
2: right now
0: is like... I love that. He's <laughs>
2: animated. Um, <laughs> and, and also, it's really clear that they'd come to Hong Kong as well, so the origins of her parents were also of migration within that part of the world. Um, I believe that one of her parents was Malaysian, and I think that the other one was... Uh, had some family history um, from India, India, although not modern-day India, uh, (coughs) India before partition, because they'd been in Hong Kong for a long time. And I I don't know enough, personally, about the histories of migration in that part of the world to be able to locate that. But then what happens is we get to my mum turning 18, and she comes to the UK to study, and this is where she met my father. And then a few years later, I was born... And that's when the story becomes even more personal because because of my father's job, we moved around a lot. So we moved around until I was 11. I had moved house, I think, eight times. And most of that was in the UK, I'll be very honest, but um, we never stayed anywhere for longer than 18 months. And at, at one stage, we moved to the US as well. My sister was born in the US. She's now renounced her US citizenship, but she was a US citizen. Um, and for me, what was interesting was actually, once we started to stay in a place for a long period of time, um, how I, how unusual I found it personally, and I say this knowing that my brother, who was also part of that movement um, with me, didn't, didn't, didn't find it that difficult, didn't find it so um, unusual, mm. or he, he actually quite enjoyed being settled, mm. whereas for me that's never really... I get a bit restless. Rolling stones. So. So, that, so, so that all sounds a little self-indulgent, but this is how I come to it, because for me, the idea of migration has always been quite normal. Mm. Um, moving is not something I find... It um, uh, sounds, sounds a bit romantic, but I don't find it as unsettling as some people might might find it, but that's because it was normalised within my life <laughs> as a young person. and. So it was habituated in that way.
1: So did your, when you were moving around, was your grandmother with you at that point? Okay,
2: so that's where, Yeah.
1: so after a while we actually settled and we settled in
2: um, (coughs) the home counties in Guildford uh, in Surrey are not a part of the world known for its ethnic diversity. Yeah. Um, I think it's like 90... My memory is it's 98% white. Jeremy
1: Hunt's constituency.
2: Yeah, well, not... Oh, is Gil- it not? not? Farnham is oh. Jeremy Hunt's constituency. Um, <clears throat> and when my grandfather retired, for various reasons, my grandparents decided to move to Wiltshire. Um, so at the age of... In her early 60s, my grandmother migrated from Hong Kong to Wiltshire again. Wow. My place. Um, and then unfortunately, a few years later, my grandfather passed away and my grandmother moved to Guildford and moved across the road from my mum. And there, she lived there until she died. And I've been reflecting on that a little bit and wondering, what kind of challenges that must have brought for her, and because she was Hong Kong, because she was from Hong Kong, she would have had a British passport. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not that she wasn't a British citizen because she was in Hong Kong before handover. Mm. They moved, they
1: moved just before handover. Okay. To the UK. So handover was 97. just, just, just. But yeah. can we, can we just give a brief explanation yeah. of what handover was? Yeah. So
2: handover was the last step in the formal decolonisation of Britain, and it's where Britain handed back. Hong Kong, which had been in its protection for 100 years back to China. Um, I suspect that today is not the day to go into what's happening in Hong Kong now. (laughs) We don't
0: want to go back, we want to go back. This
2: will come (laughs) out a bit later, but yeah,
1: yeah. yeah.
2: So I think for me, there was always a fascination. And this is is kind of part of why I did my degree. I did a degree in social anthropology because I was actually interested in other parts of the world um, that hadn't been picked up in either my, um, well, in my school education, Um, And I've been thinking about it a lot. I, I never particularly enjoyed British history. And I wonder to myself now whether some of that was actually to do with the fact that it couldn't actually explain my family or my history not that not that everything always has to but it was um quite notable that I found quite a lot of this really really not very exciting or very interesting
1: that's so I've never thought about it like that so do you think that like you get so many people that are in quotations English feel passionate about their history because they see themselves in that I know I'm saying I know that sounds really obvious do you know what I mean, or do you think it's? I don't not know. As I, as I,
0: as I, I like history because I think the same things you use, Michel. Like I just think when I started studying it and liking it, I realised that this really doesn't really describe me. There's there's bits I find interesting, but there's chunks missing. It doesn't really explain why I'm here or or anything really. So it makes you or well, made me want to look further afield. And so first of all, I started looking back at ancient history. And when you look at ancient history, you, I started going through like to Persia and stuff like that. So you start seeing things differently. You, don't, you understand that Europe's not the centre, whereas you're told or, you're, or you understand that until that time that you think it is what I thought you used to think it was. So, yeah, I, I, I can kind of agree with that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I do wonder whether that is the case or whether it was just one of those. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's really difficult, like, re, repositioning those things. And there were so many things that we knew, like the stories that my grandmother used to tell us about um, the Japanese in Hong Kong at the t- during the war, which my mother tried to stop her from telling because they are horrible, violent yeah. stories about what happened there, um, that kind of change our perspective on things. They say, ah, oh, there, there are four of us, so so it's... Four, si- um, four children, yeah. Yeah, four children, and, and, and so we're a big family. But we always had that... Experience of kind of transnational caring. My grandmother would come over and look after us for long periods of time over the summer before she moved back to the UK. And the experience um, of finding my grandmother others within my own home uh, when people would come over in the streets in this very very white town that we lived in um, have always uh, flavored my my understanding of the world. And just just one example, um, I remember being very young, and my parents had gone away for the weekend, my grandmother was there looking after me, it must have been about, probably about eight or nine, I can't remember whether my sister was born, my younger, one of my younger sisters, and this friend came round to play for the afternoon, as you do, and we're sitting in the living room, um, and she says to me, oh, um, you know, I, I'd like a drink, I'm like, oh, go into the kitchen and ask my grandmother, and she goes into the kitchen, and she comes back and she bursts into tears. I said, well, um, are you okay? And she said, oh, there's a funny lady in your kitchen. So I go and I walk into the kitchen and I see my grandmother. And I come back and I say, what do you mean there's a funny lady in my kitchen? In my, kitchen? my grandmother's in the kitchen. And, and so that, that kind of disconnect between, you know, me seeing, you know, this close relative of mine who looked after me and this young girl who'd probably never seen... Um, a person of colour in, in, in one of her friend's houses really was quite a telling experience for me. Mm. And Chantelle knows that I've been thinking a lot mm. about um, how I was raised and how I was brought up. And I, I'm, I know that my mother sought out other uh, children who were from mixed race backgrounds mm. to socialize with. And now, now I go back through it, I realize that was what she was doing, which must have been quite, quite a difficult thing. And in a white it, town. In, in yeah.
1: a white town. Um, so it's it, it's quite, a, quite 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 interesting. Mm. So, um, mm. but but this is this is me. I get quite self indulgent at times. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. It's so like I don't. You don't talk. I don't think you talk about this stuff. I think it's. I think
0: it's... But it make, it makes sense. It adds. I think it adds depth to it all. To, to understand people, why people do things, and also yeah. that the kind of similarities that people go through these same processes that people go through now. Yeah. Like um. I I think with this kind of idea of like the kind of this transnational history, I think what Britain doesn't really do is they don't really understand where they sit in that. They just, they think they sit at the top and they kind of just float on it and they're not related, they don't kind of see themselves as part of this kind of global thing that's always been happening.
2: Absolutely. And this, I think this is, that's a really, really good link to the work that I do. what I what I have spent my academic career researching is the emigration of British people from Britain, um, and I think that when I started that, the reason I started it was because I was looking at all of this research about migration um, when I was an undergraduate student, and realised that actually a lot of it was turned towards, even in the kind of the late 1990s, was was very much turned towards constructing Britain as having um, uh, an immigration, you know, it was was always turned inwards, so looking at at what Britain's relationship was to immigration. And very, you know, very well-meaning research about challenging those narratives around migration as a social problem, around um, challenging the changing policy frameworks and governance frameworks that mean that some people can come into the country and some people can't come into the country but never really tapping into the fact that what we now know is that Britain has one of the highest emigration rates in the world per capita. So what that means is that there are um, a very high number of British people leaving the country uh, as as a proportion of the overall population, and it's stable. It doesn't slow or stop when things happen. Uh, When there's a crisis, like a financial crisis description, it doesn't stop people leaving Britain. Um, When Brexit happens, it hasn't stopped people from leaving Britain. Um, So I don't think that we can really talk about migration unless we understand that migration is about people moving in and out, but also moving around. Mm -hmm. And that has become... That's been lost from the discussion around the sociology of migration. If you go back to the 1930s... When, of course, we were in a really different period of Britain's history. We were in the imperial history at that point. Um, Actually, migration research was about people moving in and out, and it was about people moving around the country. So movement, at that time, I think they were starting to see the beginnings of the kind of migrations down towards London, which started to really expand in the 1960s. And I think to have a more balanced conversation about migration in Britain we should actually be linking these things back up together.
0: Whenever I think of that kind of debate and how it's framed, the exporting of people from the UK is seen as someone who's an expat. It's not someone who's an immigrant or a, a parasite or all those kind of negative terms. So they're seen as someone who's, I don't know, I remember, I read the definition somewhere. Someone said, like, they go there and they, they contribute in the that they've, they've got money, they've got income, so they're not looking to kind of be a burden on that country. And they normally go to places like Australia or somewhere like Thailand or, so it, it's, I don't know how they see themselves, I don't know, it's still that kind of like notion that they're still not part of that transnational history. There's immigrants who are those lot, and there's expats who was us, who were quite, that kind of followed the same tropes of civilized, got money, doing things that's what that's what I i've kind of come across I,
2: I, I think that's really really
1: helpful to say because of course
2: this is, this like is my yeah, massive this project. is <laughs> this going to
1: say michael's going to come back with something good now
2: <laughs> well hopefully um i think that there's there's it's really important to recognize that whenever we're talking about migration the story is clouded by um stereotypes and misrepresentations mm. And when it comes to consideration of British citizens who live abroad, we have to distinguish between those representations and the work that those representations do and the lives and experiences of the people that we're talking about. So when we look at those stereotypes, I think we should ask ourselves a question of what work are they doing? And the way that you've just described it is really helpful because what it shows is how binary that um, narrative about migration is. Which is you're either deserving or you're undeserving you're either contributing or you're not contributing when you reposition that stereotype and representation of the expatriate against the stereotype and representation of the migrant you can start to see very clearly what some of the values are that play out in both of those cases they're they're dichotomous representations (laughs) what they don't do is tell us anything about the people themselves who's migrating, why they're migrating, uh, what their lives are like, what their experiences are like, what the structures are that support and facilitate those things. I think in the current climate, what they also do is they highlight to us who we value as a citizen. Mm -hmm. And they highlight very much, unfortunately and very starkly, this idea of the contributory citizen, the person who pays their way. In other um, national contexts, it plays out as kind of like the good migrant um, or um, I've heard it in re- in respect to the work that I've done with North Americans who've moved to Panama, you know, the contrast between themselves and the ugly American who doesn't behave in the right way. They tell us lots of things about the overprivileging of particularly economic understandings of integration. I've got air quotes around this one, <laughs> this is one of my hated terms. Um, that, you know, kind of normalise particular understandings of what it means to be um, a valuable subject within, within this particular environment. So it is really useful to think with those stereotypes. And Chantel's done some work with me about the stereotypes and, and the problems of those stereotypes and how um, uh, everyday and normalised they've become in the way that even British politicians speak about British citizens who live abroad. And how damaging that can be to the consideration of people's rights and entitlements. Because there's the starting point is an assumption that is based on a complete misunderstanding of the population. What I normally use to uh, explain um, how we need to understand the diversity of British citizens who live abroad is... Talking about the fact that when we talk about British citizens who live in Europe, which is what I'm doing at the moment on the Brexpat's research project, we're talking about
1: 79% of that population are of working age and below. They're not retired. You talk about, first of all, the biggest one of the biggest myths is that they're all old and yeah. old white retirees, but actually 79% of them are of working age. And also one of the things that me and Mika are spoken about in our paper together is that. Britain is multi ethnic, multi racial, multicultural. Therefore, the British population living outside of Britain is going to be that as well. So, us, so there being the stereotypes and the representations, misrepresentations, particularly by politicians as well, is actually damaging both to these populations and those that are more vulnerable within these populations as well. Is that, would you say that's right? Yeah.
2: And I think one of the, One of the things about the expatriate label that I think is useful is that it really does remind people that Britain was a colonial power, and I think that that's really important. It's really important in terms of understanding how it is that British citizens have been able to move and settle in every single part of the world. That is very, very important, but that's a structural condition. That's a historical structural condition that... Doesn't necessarily translate into the behaviour of all British people who live abroad.
0: Because mm. I, I, I was thinking, like that that structural nature, no, that structural nature of it all kind of ties into the idea that. The Europeans are industrious, so this kind of naked individualism, individualism individualism. So when they go somewhere, like when they went to America, it's our land. We turn this land into something. So when they go this, that, that expatriate, they like, they go there and do something that's con, that they can contribute to society, and that notion runs quite deep in like European history. Like, so, when you look at the far right debates, they they think this is we made America, we made Australia, we made this civilization, and it's that notion that. When, they, when Europeans go places, they do something productive. And that's why that kind of expat label sits quite well with them. So they don't feel that they're part of whatever culture they go to. They are contributors to that culture. And, like I, well, the people like John Tyndall and, and Nick Griffin, they kind of talk about this all the time. And this narrative runs through.
1: <clears throat> but what I think is quite interesting about that, though, T, and if you look at, yeah, representations of these populations, particularly by those that have power, part of the establishment, politicians, whatever, is that their arguments about these people being contributors and integrated and whatever just don't actually help even their cause or what they're trying... Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what I find fascinating about it because actually, like, you've got representations of British people during the during Brexit from in Parliament. They're talking about these people as if they're, like... Um, Ex military, um, that they've contributed loads of taxes and that they need to be protected, all this stuff. But actually, like, it's so much, there's so much more to it. And even if they actually looked at the population more deeply and understood who they were even that might improve their, in co- in quotations, cause. Like, I'm not saying I'm not pro their cause, but, like, do you know what I mean? It's just fascinating that they still say this stuff. It's, yeah. so, it's so symbolic. But it's,
0: it's so deeply ingrained in people's heads, like...
1: But it's just not true. I know it's not that's true. That's what it's but, like. But, but, but that's,
0: the, that's the point. It's, yeah. it's a myth, and yeah. that myth is so, it's so, it's it, powerful, it's so powerful. It's a
2: very powerful myth, and I think I think you have touched on something from the point of view of what is essentially a settler, settler colonialist narrative in the way that that might be being mobilised by the far right um, versus what you're talking about, which is to do with a very different type of narrative, which is UK Parliament really retrenching around like an understanding re- really actually um, kind of um, bounded by the borders of the British Isles. Yeah. So not really being able to reconcile that there are British citizens for whom they may have some responsibility, who aren't here. And, and because they're not here, they also don't have any political sway for various reasons, because they don't have overseas representation, for example, oh, and yeah, they lose yeah, the right yeah. to vote after 15 yeah. years. So I think that there are two, two different narratives playing out, the myths working in two quite different ways in that respect. And I think what's frustrating about it um, as an academic is the extent to which, you know, you, know, you never trust politicians to get it right, <laughs> um, but the frustration that I have faced as an academic throughout the 15 years or more, actually, I think it's 17 now, <laughs> I've been doing this research, is in getting uh, academics, uh, getting scholars to see past those myths. And that really has been... I mean, the last few years have been quite different in some respects because of Brexit and because of those kinds of discussions around what Brexit means for British citizens who live in the EU 27, who are losing their European Union citizenship, which are the terms on which they've been able to settle in those places so far. There's been a slight shift towards recognising that actually maybe we should be paying more attention to this. And I think that the objection to, I don't know whether it's an objection, it's a kind of a lukewarm reception, I think I would say, but also one that is often framed in terms of, well, why are you looking at these privileged people? um, Has has been precisely to do with a kind of misunderstanding of the diversity of the population. There's very little knowledge, statistical knowledge, about who this population are. And what we have is, you know, I should say, quite deeply flawed Um, And like, you know, a consistent not looking that way um, at who these people are, what their experiences are. Not necessarily considering them as uh, people who have migrated. um, And that also is a consequence of kind of research uh, that is internalised to Europe, that looks at movement within Europe as something different to movement Outside of Europe or movement into Europe, mm. um, so I think that there are lots of different agendas that play out, by which you find the case of British people who've left Britain um, marginalised in various ways because it just doesn't quite fit anywhere.
0: I, so I, I was just thinking then if it <coughs> if we if we have all these kind of like contradictions, um, so. How do you define? I think one of the problems is how do you define someone who's a citizen? Like if we're so concerned about the idea of a nation state and the people in this particular territory are British or French, if they're somewhere else, who are they?
1: This is that's 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 interesting because this is it's what really this is what's come out yeah. in in um Michael's research, like how close people still feel to Britishness, yeah, even when.
0: But, it's, but that's, it's tied into that kind of colonial Actually, like When I speak to my gran, like, she'll, she will gladly put out a passport. It, it's, it has a kind of uh, power to it to say that I'm British. I'm I think, British. I think
2: it functions on different levels. And I think there, there, are, there are questions about how you mobilise that and operationalise it in doing research with British citizens who live overseas, um, as much as how you understand how people themselves understand that, that uh, practice of being a citizen... Um, so whether they do just understand it as a piece of paper, whether they understand it as a set of rights and entitlements, whether they understand it as something that they have been excluded from or alienated from. And we've thought a lot about this in relation to the Brexpats research, partly because we've also been working in Ireland where you're dealing with British citizens on paper because they may have a British passport who don't have any... uh, well, they, they probably do have a strong sense of um, themselves as British vis-a-vis people who don't have a British passport but are nevertheless from Northern Ireland, but have an Irish passport instead, Yeah. yeah. Who, who would say, well, you know, I was entitled to it, but I chose not to take it because this is, you know, again, falling along those sectarian lines, working with British people of colour who have a very uneasy um, relationship quite often, with the idea of being British precisely because it's something that they've been excluded from through a whole range of different uh, everyday practices, even if, again, they have their passport and they can show, I am a British citizen. Um, For people who don't want to be British any longer, uh, people who want to be European. Um, So it's been quite a tricky uh, case to kind of play out. So we've been really asking ourselves, well, what do we mean when we say this? And how do you see Britishness, then, through this lens on these overseas citizens as playing out in terms of a set of practices, in terms of a set of rights, in terms of a set of entitlements? Because there's a very big difference between legal status and how people actually experience that being British or what it even means to them, what their relationship to Britain even means to them. And I think that that relationship to Britain is the thing that is the most interesting about it. And this is one of the um, things that we're seeing, what we've been witnessing for some people that we've been working with, is a questioning of that relationship to Britain in ways that they have never questioned it before, because they could take for granted that they were British and this was their place in the world. And now, um, with the kind of the spectre of Brexit, they're asking questions about whether they know Britain and whether Britishness is for them. And in the process... They reveal quite a lot about the significance of Britishness to them, which, you know, I, I realise I'm kind of talking slightly cryptically, but but you know, they it, it becomes clear that they care deeply in a lot of cases about Britain and Britishness in ways that are kind of contradictory to what they're actually saying. It's if you see what I mean, the kind of the volume of emotion and passion that's communicated through that um, can often be counter to their well, you know, look what they've done. Um, They've voted to leave the European Union and they don't care about us. And Britain has become this awful, uh, racist, xenophobic place. And yet you can hear from the emotion and passion in their voices that it must have been meaningful to them to be British precisely because otherwise it wouldn't evoke those types of emotional responses.
0: I think that's, yeah, I think that's definitely consistent with, what, from my experience, I'm, critical of what's happened but I care deeply about uh-huh. this place and it's just because what well, I've been socialized then it's normalized to me uh-huh. so it's the contradictory feelings. so rationally I an, analyze the problems here but emotionally I feel a tie to this and I think in sociology we sometimes try to separate the two the rational and the emotional when they're bound up it's one of the, with one another so this I think that's what most people feel you critique it but or you support it or whatever it is, but you have an emotional tie to this place. And that is one of the kind of crazy things about nationalism. It evokes those kind of emotional responses. And this is the kind of danger when politicians play with nationalism, you're playing with people's emotions. And sometimes, well, most of the time in European history, it's turned that in a very bad way. So, yeah.
1: I think sort of just to come in on um, those emotions, Mika, I know we've spoken about this at length, but... What I guess has been interesting whilst working with you on this project is looking at the different responses from different groups. So, I was interviewing British people of colour that are actually looking at the sample, looking back at the sample now that were mainly of Black British. Um, and A lot of them quite um, well educated, middle class, moved around lots, but the way they sort of. Um, narrated Brexit and their feelings around it and Britishness was slightly more ambivalent and a bit more like, first of all, they knew what would happen, as in that there would be an increase in racism and xenophobia. And second of all, sort of an unsurprised reaction in a way, an emotional one, one that is like, this is really sad, I've got to think about my position, but also sounds pretty British to me doing like <laughs> yeah. do you know what I mean and yeah. quite yeah. not quite normalised yeah. and I remember to hear us talking before Brexit happened or yeah. maybe just after did we meet just after Bre- no but before Brexit yeah. and you saying to me that you had been saying to a friend who had been debating voting for Brexit and you saying that like as a black man I know that this is not good news <laughs> yeah, yeah, for me yeah. if we do this and it's sort of like in some ways like I, I those reactions that you've, that you've documented have um, are really important and really need to be interrogated, but in other in other ways, they sort of really scream to me like a white privilege, a British privilege. And I know you I'm, this yeah. isn't this is something that you've you've written about and spoken about a lot, but that like it takes something that happens in twenty sixteen that affects your personal life, for you to understand the violence that is of the state. The state.
2: And I, yeah. think, I think that that's really, really important. What's become very, very clear is that this has been a moment where some people have woken up to the fact that rights and entitlements can be changed mm. and that the decisions that are taken somewhere else can have an impact on you. And I say that um, knowing that people have made... Some people have made a great deal of um, progress. They're going to it in face. not really the right word. Yeah. But, but it's really clear that this has been a learning process yeah. for some people. So first of all, this thing happens. Britain votes to leave the European Union. People are upset and outraged, and, and and I should also say, and I always caveat this because there'll be someone listening who says, "But didn't British people who live in Europe vote to leave?" Yes, of course, there are British people who live in Europe who voted to leave. Who are
1: interested? They're interested, but not. There's not that
2: many. There's not that Well, I think well. there
1: are there are a fair number, but yeah. but they're not they're not the
2: majority. Uh, well, at least not the majority in our sample. Yeah. Um, and so they wake up to that, and then they start to interpret it. Well, what does this mean? well, this means that Britain is racist and xenophobic. Um, and and it could be for them that this is the point at which they, because that's the point at which they realise it, that's the point at which they suddenly, um, they, they think Britain became racist and xenophobic. And I think one of the things that has been more interesting in recent months is the extent to which some some people, and I would say it's not, A huge number of people are starting to link that together and to understand how it's connected to all of those other issues about how britain has controlled its borders and how europe has controlled its borders and i think that that's it's positive that people recognize that i think one of the dangers with brexit and chantelle knows my my other bugbear about brexit which is the fact that it's far too easy for European citizens, for British citizens who live abroad, who are having their rights changed, to present themselves as somehow exceptional. Um, As though this is the first time ever that anyone's rights were ever changed, taken away, uh, anyone's entitlements, right to reside, was ever changed. And one of the things that upset me quite a lot, and I will use the word upset quite deliberately here, right at the start of the project, was the kind of discovery that what could have been a moment of solidarity with other um, migrant communities, non
1: EU, so non EU,
2: and um, third country nationals, that never really came to fruition in the way that I thought it could have done, and I think that this reinforces that idea that somehow if you are um, European uh, or if you're British uh, because obviously we will cease to be European uh, fairly shortly at some stage um, that you are somehow special and that you have um, you are entitled to more than other people which of course freedom of movement regulation in within Europe, is a way of privileging movement of people who hold this strange thing called European Union citizenship. So it was already a privileged position within broader contexts of migration governance, where people are vetted for their ability to um, meet particular terms of crossing borders. The other thing that it does, which has also um, been... I, I don't think that this gets said often enough. Freedom of movement is not free. It's not uh, open for everyone to move, okay? Mm -hmm. Even European citizens, there are terms and conditions that apply to this. It's conditional right to reside in another country after a period of time. And what this means is that freedom of movement within Europe was highly differentiated. So even within that European demos, um, there were people who were always questioned for their right to move. And I think there's a great piece um, on the Verso blog by um, Luke Butterly that's about uh, who gets stopped at the border between Ireland and Britain, and that border between Ireland and Britain isn't act- you know, is, is governed by an entirely different free movement regulation, which is the common travel area, which has been enforced since the 1920s, um, actually probably the 1940s officially. And, I, I'm sure that it won't surprise you to know that if you are a British person of colour or an Irish person of colour, you're much more likely to be stopped at that border, which is allegedly one that we can all cross without, you know, without, any, without any second guess. The other people, all we have to do is we have to think about how the Roma have been treated <coughs> yeah. to understand how uh, differentiated and uneven that experience of free movement has been. Brexit is actually making that visible whether it's through the Settled Status Scheme, whether it's through how British citizens are being treated in other EU member states. But the issues that um, are at play within uh, our considerations of British citizens living in the EU, EU citizens living in the UK, really do need to recognise that this is positioned within quite drastically changing migration regimes across Europe that are becoming increasingly punitive and increasingly brutal. So this has got to be set within that. And that's not to say that the experience of these people needs to be made even more, they need to be punished you know, even more along this, the same lines as other people. But there is a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy of belonging within Europe and there's a hierarchy of access to rights and entitlements that I think it's time that we really opened up and were honest about. And Babe. we need to understand how that's racialised. <clears throat> we need to understand how that is um, also gendered. And we need to understand how it privileges uh, populations who are able bodied, you know, there are so many intersectional concerns that we need to bring to the table in understanding that. That I think actually that focus on, and I say this knowing, a focus on British people who live abroad, um, on nationalists, on on the kind of nationality as the marker, actually obscures. That is like
1: mic drop.
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's a lot. Like, that's like, so that's, that's a lot, that's a lot.
1: That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, lot. that's what it is, is really.
0: See, I, obviously I agree with all that, but it's trying to, trying to place that narrative against the myth.
2: Mm.
0: People, people are so entrenched in that myth. Europeans are so entrenched. The idea that, the fact that Brexit caused, it caused like a midlife crisis for this country to kind of think of themselves as, part of this global village of people that migrate everywhere and this who belongs here, do you belong here? I, do, do these people belong here? Do they have the same rights as me? Why should they have the same rights? I've lived here, contributed, but they've come here and they've getting the same rights as me. This kind of narrative is so powerful and you think, well, the truth is a lot more messy. It's a lot, it's a lot more nuanced and it needs a bit more explaining and people just, like <laughs> Nigel Farage is kind of hitting the nail the head. People love simple, short, emotive notes that they can just jump on. And an academics work is never that way. Never. <laughs> so I, I don't know how we cause this kind of structural change in to, in today's in today's environment because, like I said, most people are not really interested in the nuance. They just want someone to say, "You're okay," "You're not." and this narrative has been i i read an article the other day about the eu shifting their borders outside the kind of the actual territories of the european union so they've kind of made made deals with countries like niger in africa saying we'll give you a million a billion euros but you stop people coming through niger so effectively the european borders are in africa now rather than at the teritor- territorial boundaries of where the countries in. Yeah. So effectively, they've made a crime of trying to make your life better and in another country where they don't have any legal laws. And if sovereignty is a big, big issue, yeah. that goes out the window. Who has sovereignty? The, who, who they decide has sovereignty?
2: I think that's... I mean, this is why I think it's really important that we don't get too fixated on Brexit as an exceptional yeah. thing. Or as Britain as exceptionally uh, as exceptional in its bordering regime, um, as exceptional as Chantal and I have talked, in its in its uh, racism, for example. Because at the heart of that European project um, that produces this ever-expansive like removal of things from their territories and the positioning of their territories in other people's sovereign states is the fact that we know that Europe is a white project. It has been a white project in the whole of its history. And this is what we're seeing playing out in these ways. And we're seeing it come together with ideas around neoliberal economics. We're seeing it coming together in kind of increasing levels of inequality on the ground in most of those countries. Britain is, is quite exceptional in the extent of that inequality for lots and lots of reasons. And we're seeing it coming together in the privileging of a population of Europeans who are imagined as phenotypically white, um, I would say, um, and anyone who doesn't quite conform with that narrative or can't be... I I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that because really at the heart of ideas around migration within Europe and migration from beyond is this idealised type of worker That they have in mind Mm. and that idealized type of worker is often a man a single man without a family um, who can come and do the work that's required and then can leave you know these ideas of this kind of reserve army of labor Um, and so it does mean that lots of legal structures that are in place whether that's to do with um third country nationals, so people coming from outside Europe or not, actually the legal structures are complicit within the reproduction of particular understandings. And when we start to look of who is a migrant and when we start to look at um, who is then excluded, you can start to see how this plays out. (coughs)
1: So one of the things that I was just thinking about then, listening to your response to Michaela T, and then your followed-on response, Michaela, was how um, two things, actually. First thing was during some interviews that I was doing for the Brexpats project when I was interviewing um, people of colour living in the EU27. And at the time, at one of the points when I was doing the interviewing was when the Windrush scandal was making the news. And what I feel like we're sort of talking about here is like issues of belonging, who's belongs, hierarchies of belonging. A feature of the interviews that I was having with people was discussions around family members feeling unsafe, um, how Windrush is making them feel whilst being within um, uh, Spain, France, Italy, and what's happening back at home. Obviously like the Windrush scandal in, in, I feel like we're doing a lot of air quotes today, um, (laughs) is a, problematic term and moment in itself because it's been happening for a very long time it wasn't just in that period last year but um how the media portrayed it was and things that were and things were seeming to be escalating following from the hostile environment and it's how those narrations came through my discussions with people about brexit and histories of racism and how those conversations around Windrush possibly wouldn't have come about with people that are racialized as white.
2: I have been back to France interviewing people since that. And yeah. people do talk about it a little bit. And I think it, it's really easy for me to kind of think in my head that pe- people aren't always necessarily aware of all of those border regimes that are happening yeah. in people's everyday lives. But I was surprised myself, I was looking back over some some of the citizens' postcards that we've received, the mm. kind of the meets of Brits in Europe that we've collected as part of the project, from different parts of Europe, and people talking about the rise of racism in their countries that they're living in, yeah. which I'd kind of overlooked, I'd been a little unfair to the people that we'd worked with in overlooking that, but really critically reflecting on what is, um, you know not the rise of racism, but the um, exacerbation of uh, racism in a lot of these countries because of what's happening in mainstream politics in those countries. And I'm thinking here about um, a, a postcard that we received from somebody in Sweden, for example. Mm. Um, and and some of the people that I've worked with in France as well, where, of course, on the ground uh, there are things going on which... Um, are are potentially quite alarming um, because of the rise of the Front National and and Mm. things like that. But I think you're right, Chantal, which is that the readiness with which people are likely to come out and say, "Okay, well, it's not just Brexit, it's also this. Mm. Uh, And it's also the fact that, you know, in my own family history this is happening or in my own family uh, unit these are the concerns we've had, or these are the things that we've had to do to go through in order to uh, get the right type of citizenship, for mm. example, um, because one of the lesser-known facts about British citizenship and passports is that there are seven different categories, <laughs> um, <laughs> which all come with different sets of rights. So if you're a British Overseas Territory um, citizen, I think that's the right one, mm. you don't actually have access to freedom of movement for example, even though you have a British passport. okay, Which I think is really, really interesting to see how rights were stratified depending on which category of citizen you were classed as. And this is something that people just are not aware of.
0: To me, it all kind of makes sense. When you say it to me, it all makes sense. It's just the kind of project of the enlightenment, you need to categorize people. It needs You need to have like, sh- like sh- you need to stratify things. There's people at the top, there's always a hierarchy.
2: And you're always making decisions about how to do that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And power comes into
0: it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But what I was thinking, now you're like, she's talking about Britain and this kind of like, <clears throat> this notion of belonging and citizenship. I was looking at how now China is exporting people on a large scale, as part of the kind of Bridge Road Initiative program, and I think the parts of the world that China is exporting people to, they have a recent history of colonialism. So the people on the on the ground, their reaction has been they feel like the Chinese taking it. So it's this whole new set of racisms and a whole new set of gendered norms are, are coming out that that we I don't know I don't think people have even started to look at at the moment because especially in 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 Grenada where my parents are from or where I was recently. In the Far East, people are saying about the, they feel the Chinese are taking over. Australia saying the Chinese are they're too wealthy. They're coming over and buying everything up. That's the narrative. It's not the narrative of immigrants coming here, like, taking but over.
2: Do you, I mean, so I think there are two different things there, which mm-hmm. are to do with how we understand what happens to race uh, relations on the ground in those kind of massive infrastructural projects that are happening. Mm-hmm. There's also, again, that narrative and that representation. And I'm going to say something that's probably quite unpopular. But I think even when we're talking about those re- mis- those representations of wealthy migrants, we have got to be really careful because they're highly racialised as well. So I remember back in, in, the, uh, in around 2011, 2012, Emma Jackson and I were doing some research on the middle classes uh, in London and one of the narratives that was coming out of one of the neighbourhoods we were working in was to do with these really, um, the wealthy Russians that were moving in. And these narratives about the Russians were despicable.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, they really true. are, you know they,
2: you know, they build these, you know, they present them as tasteless. They present them as gangsters. They go through all of these narratives. And I think that they are, they tell you absolutely nothing about those people They tell you about people's concerns, but they also tell you about how deeply ingrained those ideas about who is allowed to be here and who has a right to be here. Um, As as you know, those discussions about um, kind of really, really unpleasant discussions about about refugees, asylum seekers, people taking benefits, which I think we've got, I think the whole narrative needs to shift. I don't... And as I said, I suspect that that's an unpopular opinion, but I I really think that we've got ourselves into a a mess. You've talked about the far right, you've talked about Farage. This is a problem that's been 30 years in the making at least. This starts, and it goes back to the nationality law from 1981. So not 30 years, nearly 40 (laughs) years. Um, You know, and, and how this is drip, drip, drip through the media, but also through our policies... Um, through the way that, you know, this has been normalised as an okay way to talk about people who weren't born in this country or people who were born in this country but don't look like they should have been. And I think that these are really, they're really, really big problems. And I don't think we're, you know, I I know my parents, for example, with me in the 1980s, and, and, you know, um, were concerned about bringing up children who were mixed race in this Mm -hmm. country. And this is probably the reason why my grandparents didn't bring my mother up here either, because there there has been this long-standing problem with this kind of this understanding of who's British, which is shaped through our history books, through our schooling, you know, and all of these things, which, which continue to present this island as somehow the kind of the sovereign property of this group of people that probably never existed, you know. And I think that that's...
1: Sorry, I got a
0: bit angry. <laughs> no, it's good, we no. like it, that's what we, that's what we want on the. I, I, I agree, and I always come back to them, but, but, but how do we do that? Like, it's lots it's of a com- really big challenge. Yeah, it's, it's a really big
2: challenge.
0: But talking to people, even when I talk to people, sometimes when you're talking to people, they're so unaware of how they've been socialised. They see no continuity between themselves, who's a, a liberal person, and a someone who's on the far right, some crazy person shouting out whatever in the street they, they see no continuity in them and what they're defending this notion of britishness, this notion of whatever it is that exists or how, or how they, they don't even have to describe it so when you're talking to them you're i'm when I'm saying stuff, they actually look shocked, and it's sometimes down to their the understanding of history or how they locate Britain in. This kind of global history pattern, but it's it's such a challenge because most people are not they're not aware of it. So
1: this is so I think that, and I don't think this is this is for all sociology or all academia that does um, social research. But I do think that as time goes on and as things get worse, I feel like that we have to be more explicit in what the real. What real-term consequences have been for certain things, whether it's a rise in the mainstream um, racism and xenophobia? So, like we, myself and Mika, when we wrote our paper together, we purposely made sure that there were things that were in there that people would find uncomfortable to read. And it's not to it, it's not to shock, but it's to inform. It's to say, look, this is what is happening; these are real things. So, an example being that one of the p- people, a black guy that I interviewed, is in the Netherlands, was beaten up by the AFD another black woman had had a gun put in her face and I'm not saying that the way you change things is by like giving people (sighs) examples of violence but I do think as sociologists we have to think more how do we use the social research that we have to help people understand how bad this situation is like does that does that it make, sense? make sense
2: but I think that there's another thing as well and another thing that we tried to do in this paper was we tried to highlight the kind of the structural and the systemic dimensions of this over and above yeah. that out and out racial violence yeah. that happens in the streets and there's a really good reason for doing that and I think this is something that we have to also be aware of one of the things that gives those people who just, you know, they just reproduce things on a day-to-day basis. They're not the people that we're, who'd go out in the streets and beat up somebody because of the colour of their skin. They're the people who would say, oh, you know, it's terrible that that's happening. We don't look at them. And we don't look at these people who have these very normalised views. Yep. Um, which seem, probably did seem up until a few years ago, to be kind of, well, they're they're mostly good. Do do you know what I mean? They're they're the mostly good people. Um, And I think that we have been a bit complacent about that, and we haven't really addressed how racism functions, for example, how racism, how sexism functions through those mostly good people and and the ideas that they hold. And I think that that's a real challenge. With social science, responses to Brexit has been to focus on the extreme, and not to focus on the moderates. And we know that even within uh, the discourses, narratives, understandings of moderate ideas about racism persist. Well, racist ideas persist, Mm -hmm. sorry, I Mm -hmm. should say. And they are the majority, not the extremes. And by focusing on the extremes, it's very convenient because we can continue to just look the other way and say that racism is there. Mm Racism's not here in our institutions. It's not in our structures. It's not in the fact that, you know, as a moderate, people can say, oh, well, you know, well, you know, personally, you know, I don't have a problem (coughs) with migrants, but for those communities that have been devastated by migration, I could understand why they would vote to leave. I mean, this is the myth in action. We know that 59% of the population who voted to leave the European Union are from the home counties. Are pretty middle class, well-heeled. Thank you, Danny
1: Dorling. Yes. <laughs> thank you, Danny Dorling. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, and yet, yeah, who's there? Who's in Guildford? Who's in uh, Tunbridge Wells? Who's in
1: Cornwall? Three hundred thousand. You know, Lee talking, voters?
2: talking to these, talking to these people who, who, to all intents and purposes, on any polling would demonstrate that they have moderate political opinions. Mm-hmm. And how did we get to this stage? And we can, we can spend a lot of time backtracking and, and kind of making excuses for why people do these things. But I think we have got to face up to the fact that, um, you know, there are, that those racist ideologies have become every day. They've become common sense. <coughs> and this is a really, really big problem. And I don't know what the answer is, except that we have to keep finding ways of challenging people of making this knowledge public in mm-hmm. ways that people can digest, mm-hmm. because and and it's the moderates, you know. I can go out, I can shout about the far right. The far right aren't going to listen mm-hmm. to me, you mm-hmm. know. But and and actually, they're not the people whose opinions we can change.
0: Yeah, no, hundred percent. I, it, it's talking to people, but the, but it's the it's the mundane that's the problem. It's yeah. because it's so everyday, and so they individualise acts of racism or acts, so they say, well. That's a racist person because he's outwardly racist, and they don't realise the kind of notion that you're s- racist socialised. you've grown up in this, and it's it's that disconnect that yeah. it there's individual like I said, like I said with the um, acts of far right extremism. So when that white guy kills someone, he's you can identify he's a bad person. Yeah. But that same narrative when if you flip it over when you talk about Islam, they say. Even though it, that that guy did it, they cast all of Islam as a problem because they understand in that case there's a socialization, there's a continuity between the two. But, but they look,
1: don't they don't take their own position or how they yeah. socialize as a contributor to that white guy killing. Yeah. Those but I think
2: I, I think what's really significant about this, and this is why sociology has to continue. Mm-hmm. And I think you also have to understand it. I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not really as pessimistic as, I come, <laughs> as fatalistic as I come across, but I think that you also have to understand how. A lot of this is caught up in the way in which critical social sciences, like sociology, are repeatedly placed under pressure. Because we have that narrative. We understand structure and agencies simply. I mean, we understand that you know an individual is never an individual. <laughs> an individual is constructed through the various interplay of them with you know, the structures within society um, that, that you know, are, are definitely there. We understand that. And yet it's not our knowledge that's the mainstream social science. Mm. It's not our knowledge that comes across in the media, with a few exceptions, a few really, really good exceptions. But we have got to keep going, and we've got to you know, really uh, reject that narrative around individualisation. We have the tools to do that, because that's our bread and butter, or some of us at least. <clears throat> and we have to challenge that head on. You yeah. Know, the idea, you know, meritocracy is at the heart of some of this as well. The The ideal of meritocracy, which is about the individual who manages to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get through life, is one which is quite damaging, actually, towards understanding these broader structural issues. Yeah. Because no one
1: does anything on their own. Mm. Yeah. It's really difficult because I sort of feel... I'm totally with you, Mikkel. By the way, that was a. I like that. Little, I like yeah. that's a good monologue at the end. But I think one of the things that I'm sort of struggling with is the sort of urgency of what is happening. Obviously, like politics moving very quickly. Part of that is because we have the news constantly and all that. But I feel like I'm witnessing on the ground real sort of violence and racism. Like, and I've said this on the podcast like so many times. But I feel like. It is getting worse. Like, I interviewed someone um, for my PhD, actually, a black mixed-race guy. He's, like, 19. And he was doing um, a internship in the East Midlands. And he got chased by um, two, like... EDL guys in a white van they tried to run him and his two black mates over and like he was really like laid back about it he was just telling me like oh yeah this happened the other day like he's first of all he's like sat there and was just saying to me like yeah I haven't really experienced that much racism and just told me that that happened recently and I know I'm not trying to exceptionalize this moment or say that these it's things haven't happened well. before but I do really feel like I agree with you Michaela sociology is needed now So it really, really is. And we've got to keep going. But I am worried that we've run out of time. but this
0: is what (laughs) what I mean. When I've I've spoken to older people, and I've asked them, like, I spoke to another guy who came to the country in 1975. And I said, in your experience, your lived experience, have things changed since 1975? He said, no. It's just that I've learned how to navigate that.
1: Okay.
0: In my lived experience, I've learned how to navigate. So when someone doesn't sit next to me because... There's a seat there and they don't want to say to me, I don't take that person anymore. Mm-hmm. I've normalised that behaviour. Now, to them, that's a big issue. But to me, I've, I've learned how to navigate that. And it's just, I think there's a, there's a whole generation of people where, obviously, in the last 40 years, we've had a lot of anti-racism work. So to be outwardly racist is a shock. But I th- I think if you speak to me almost people who are some kind of minority, if it's gendered or racial, you've learned how to navigate those things. Mm. And so it's nothing to you, really. But now... Breaks. It's not to cause it a ramp up, but people are just more explicit about it. But you just still navigate it. I still see the you same, different different, different ways. ways, yeah.
2: And I, uh, but that in itself points to all of the problems, doesn't it? Yeah. People have to find individual solutions mm-hmm. to live their lives. Yeah. To just be able to live their lives. That that's the case. And the the you know you're absolutely right. It's ramped it up. It's ramped things up. It's also those hierarchies of belonging are never stable. They're constantly shifting. Different populations are also finding themselves within the remit of the discussion about who's allowed to be here and who's not allowed to be here. I think that what it does, Chantal, is it really sharpens the fact that, more than anything, we have got to keep on with Mm. the project, the kind of the public project of sociology, and I say that in the most critical sociology way. I think that now, more than ever we're needed and we have to speak up i think we have been you know there have been various forces which have meant that 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 that, that, that narrative has been dumbed down um or has, has been dampened i think actually not dumbed down um and i think that we really have to we we need to put our money where our mouth is i mean um, you know you know i've been in my nice cocoon of the ivory tower uh for you know <laughs> 10 or so years i've started to podcast now you know yeah. um I think that the, you know, there is, it's time, it's really time for this, you know, there's an older generation of scholars who've always been doing this. Mm. Um, And I think we have to work as a subject community um, to really actually um, try to push that knowledge out there. And it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy I mean, we've had this recent experience of trying to get something that's kind of not quite academic, published about race, Brexit, British people who live abroad, um, and we've just been met with barrier after barrier after barrier. So it's
1: not giving you the yes or no answer. It's not giving you the binary. It's yeah. saying things are complicated.
0: Yeah, OK.
2: And I think and I think that we have to find ways and we have to support each other to find ways of moving that knowledge outwards.
0: I, like I, I smashed it. <laughs> it's powerful, it's powerful, isn't it? It's powerful. I'll, st- I'll start a war. You're <laughs> probably
2: just being too kind No, we're not. It's so, it's, it's so clear. So true. It's so clear. It's so clear.
0: Well, for, from my point of view, it's true. There's a lot of people out there thinking, oh, I'd probably be talking a load But yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I'll let you know what my dad says. He like. <laughs> He'll probably tell me there were
2: loads of words he didn't understand. So
1: that's. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Micola. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It's good. Um, so we'll be back every week. Um, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Um, also, if you've joined our Patreon community, you will be having a new episode as well on top of this free one. Woof, woof, woof.